You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, for the last time, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Colossians. Today we're going to consider Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 18. Staff member asked me earlier this weekend, what does it feel like now that you're done Colossians? And I hadn't thought about it until he asked me and got a little sentimental. Um, This book has meant a lot in my own personal walk with Christ. It's meant a lot in the ministry that God's called me to do. It's meant a lot in my marriage. And uh, I don't know how many years that the Lord will allow me to have in ministry. I hope uh, and want all of them to be at this church, but this might be the probably will be the only time I will preach beginning to the end of the book of Colossians. So a little sad to see that we are departing out of this. I'm excited to see what God would have for us next. But we don't want to overlook this last passage, which could be very easy to overlook if you're not careful. Because Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 to 18 is kind of just a list of names. Um, if you weren't really watchful, you might kind of in your own Bible reading plan just be like, I'll skip this one and get ahead a day. But overlooking the important people in this passages could be overlooking some of those who were the most significant and most influential people to the church in the first century. Um, kind of glad summer is getting over not because I don't like summer, love summer. Kind of sad waking up and having to put a sweater on in the morning. But I'm glad that's getting to September because now I can watch real sports on TV. I'm sorry, I don't like baseball that much. I like football, I like hockey, I like basketball. And the only thing that really kept me interested in sports over the summer was the drafts for those sports. You know, the drafts are the time of the year where uh, the prospective players in the minor leagues have the opportunity to be selected by the major leagues to get in and get the contract and finally make the big show. And uh, if you're not careful, teams, if teams aren't careful and don't do their homework, they can look over some of those people who could end up being uh, the greatest of all time. Some of people actually asked me this week in the weekly email that we sent out, what does goat mean? You said the word goat in your title. That, it means greatest of all time. I'm sorry if you didn't understand what that means. And so I won't argue with you about this. I'm sorry, kind of, not really. Uh, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. Six Super Bowls more than any other quarterback for the New England Patriots. But you know, the greatest quarterback of all time was selected into the sixth round of the NFL draft. 150 plus people were picked before him. Greatest of all time, easily overlooked. Jose Bautista, one of the most beloved Blue Jay players of all time, wasn't picked to something like the 20th round or something, and he ended up being um, an MVP candidate one year for the Blue Jays, but overlooked so frequently. These people here in Colossians 4, verse 7 to 18, serve as examples and models for us for how we can be useful to the Lord. I want God to use me for his ministry. I, want, I hope you want God to use you for ministry. We're all called to it. And this is the idea for our message today. Christ can unite all types of people to be useful for his work. Those who might seem like failures, 
those who might outwardly seem to be fruitful, we're going to encounter a lot of different people like that today. And just like God used them, he can use you. So would you, as we do for the last time in the book of Colossians, stand with me to honor God in the reading of his word. We're going to read Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 18. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read amongst you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Our Father in heaven, it is a remarkable thing that you would choose to partner with humans such as us who are selfish, sinful, self-oriented, wicked and crooked in our desires. Yet, Lord, I'm humbled that you would want to use any of us. You've used angels in the past to share your message. You sent your only son to earth to share your message. But I bless you, Lord God, for you have given us who have believed in Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit, and gifts from the Spirit so that we might partner with you in the work that you are doing to glorify you and to make disciples. Lord, Make us useful to this work. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ can use all types of people to be useful for his work. There's a lot of unique individuals that we meet from this passage. Not a lot of punchy verses like John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. You know those verses that are good to tweet or good for a coffee mug or a bumper sticker. Not a lot of verses like that in this passage. But a lot of unique individuals. Actually, there are, uh, I think, eight people that Paul introduces who are part of his entourage to do gospel ministry. A lot of different demographics and socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomics represented here. There are five Greeks, three Jews, of those eight, two of them are prisoners. One of them's a runaway slave. One of them's a doctor. But 
What united them together to do their, the work of Christ was not the things that made them different. What made these people useful was the one thing they had in common, who they were in Christ Jesus. You see, the Apostle Paul practiced what he preached in chapter 3, verse 9 to 11. In chapter 3, verse 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Do not lie to each other, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, when you live in your new self, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. See, for the Apostle Paul, what was worthwhile to be added into his entourage to do work together that would glorify God and benefit others wasn't your resume, wasn't your family lineage, wasn't your cultural background. Those things didn't unite them together. Those things weren't what distinguished them. What distinguished them was the fullness of Christ. Our unity is in the fullness of Christ. Christ is all. That means the thing worth celebrating in the church to be able to have unity together is Jesus Christ and his supremacy. He created all things. He holds all things together. He is going to restore everything to the good purpose that he created the world for that was broken because of our sin. Christ is all and in all. He binds us all together. That's what takes a mixed bag of people like Paul's entourage to do God's work together in unity. That's what will take our church, old and young, wealthy and middle class and minimum wage, educated and only high school degree. That's what unites us together when we live by the fullness of Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, and the book of Colossians says he has been filled in us. So church, if we're going to work together in glorifying God and making disciples and sharing the good news of Jesus to the world as a team sport, we need each other. If we're going to do it together, then we need to stand firm in our unity in the fullness of Christ. So then if we are, what type of person can God use? Well, this entourage gives us some examples. Paul introduces us to these eight people in four sections. And uh, the, he first introduces us to the Jews. Then he introduces us to the Greeks. Then he greets those who are in Colossae. But the first group of people that he introduces us to are the messengers. The people, the two people who took this letter Paul wrote and delivered it to the church. These men are Tychicus and Onesimus. They're introduced in verse 7 to 9. Tychicus was a guy who was very faithful to Paul. He delivered a lot of letters for Paul to different churches. But from each of these four groups, we're going to focus on one or maybe two people. Because we don't have time to look at all of them. And the New Testament has less information about some, but a lot of information about others. So rather than focusing on Tychicus here, I want us to focus on Onesimus. And Onesimus' life reminds me that God... God can use damaging people to be useful for his work. By damaging people, I mean those people who it's, they're more of a liability to have them around. It would be a lot easier if they just weren't there in the first place, even if they were doing their best work. That was Onesimus. 
So this church that got this letter was likely meeting in the house of a man named Philemon. And Philemon had some servants, some slaves in his house. Onesimus was one of them. But before Onesimus believed in Jesus, he um, kind of ran away from his master. And in the process, he robbed his master of something in his house. It might have been easier for Philemon not even to have Onesimus around. He might have been glad that he left, even though it cost something for him to steal it. Maybe he was glad because later on, the apostle, after the apostle Paul meets Onesimus, he writes a letter back to Philemon and he says this in Philemon verse 11. Philemon says of Onesimus, formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. How does someone come from being useless to becoming useful? From being a liability to being added benefit? Maybe people have told you that you're useless before. Maybe you've wanted to contribute to helping others follow Jesus. Maybe you've tried to do work in your family or help be helpful with your friends, but... Other people have just said, nah, it's, 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 I'd rather not have you around. One player on the floor can be a liability to the whole basketball team. That's why a coach has a bench to sit you down if you're in foul trouble so he can use a player who can actually benefit him. It might be a lot easier to do schoolwork on your own, but a lot of times you've got to do group projects. But wouldn't it be easier if you could just tell one of your group members just even though you've been assigned work, let me do it because anything you do is just not good enough. It'd be a lot easier. Parents, I'm sure you want your kids to do chores, but when you see the quality of work that they do before they go back to gaming, maybe you wish that they just were doing gaming the whole time and didn't even try because it would have been easier for you just to do it yourself. God can use people like this. How did Onesimus come from being a person who was useless to becoming a person who was useful. After he ran away, he met the Apostle Paul and he heard about the message of Jesus. And when he believed on Jesus Christ, his life was transformed. Maybe he heard a message like this from the Apostle Paul. Maybe he heard Philemon, you stole something from your master. You sinned against your master. But not only have you sinned against your master on earth, but you've sinned against a heavenly master, God. And the bad news is that for your sin, there is a penalty. But the good news is that your heavenly master, Jesus, paid the penalty for your sin when he died on the cross in your place. And if you believe in him, Onesimus, you'll be forgiven. And you'll be restored to a relationship with your heavenly master and you can do work for him. Whatever the message was that Onesimus heard, he believed and when he believed, he was changed. And being changed, he became useful for God's work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. See, if you've believed in Jesus, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by grace. You're not saved by 
your works, but you are saved for good works. Christian, are you walking in the good works that God has prepared for you? Grace is the motivating factor that makes us useful for God. The Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, For by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Moreover, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not me, but the grace of God that is in me. Grace is the motivating factor and the empowerment for you to be able to be a benefit to others, to help them follow Jesus and enjoy the abundant life that he has for them. And if you haven't believed in Jesus, maybe you're know that you've done wrong and you were trying to make things right with God, I want you to know that you can't do it by being a better person. The only way that you can be right with God is by believing in the way that God provided through Jesus. That, that's the way of grace. Jesus paid the price for your sin and for your wrongdoing when he died on the cross. That was the cost that you deserve, death. And if you put your faith in him, you will be saved, you will be forgiven, and you will be changed and transformed to now be useful to help others. Onesimus was damaging. It was easier for him to not be around. But when he was saved, he didn't need to regret his past anymore because of the grace of God. The next person we're going to meet wasn't so much regretful of his past, but he was actually trying to rebuild his reputation in the present. And God even used this guy. He was from the group of three Jews that Paul introduces us to, Aristarchus. What we know about him is he's a prisoner. He's in prison with Paul right now. Justice, this, we don't really know about, much about this Jewish man, except that his name was formerly Jesus, but probably out of respect for his Savior Jesus, he changed his name to Justice. But there's another guy who we actually know a lot about. In verse 10, it says, And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Mark's life reminds me that God can use unreliable people to be useful for him, to have a purpose that lasts for eternity. Yeah, God can even use people who are unreliable. Mark was the same Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And here in this passage, Paul is advocating for Mark to the Colossian church. He wants them to welcome him if he comes to their city. But there was a time when Paul wanted nothing to do with Mark because he proved that he was unreliable and untrustworthy. See, the Apostle Paul went on three missionary journeys um, on the northern Mediterranean Sea in what was the Roman Empire. Three times he traveled around telling people about Jesus. The first time he went with some companions, Barnabas and Barnabas's cousin, Mark. But unexplicably, without reason, very soon into their trip, Mark was just like, no, I'm done. I'm going home. And he left. And we didn't see it immediately when the story is told in the book of Acts, but later on we learn that this actually really hurt Paul. When Paul wanted to go on his second missionary journey, he wanted to go back and encourage the churches that he already visited the first time. And Barnabas was going to go with him, and Barnabas had a suggestion that Paul was not really into. 
Acts chapter 15, verse 37 recalls this. It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark away with him and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed. Paul saw Mark as an unreliable, untrustworthy person that he would refused to work with, so much so that he even alienated a close friend who he had fruitful work with, Barnabas. But something changed. How did Paul get to a place where he wanted nothing to do with this guy and then now he's advocating for him. Well, time certainly helped heal the wound. There was 12 to 14 years between the sharp disagreement and between the time when this letter was written. But also, I think, I think the mentoring and guidance of Mark's cousin Barnabas was helpful for him. It, the, the text doesn't say whether Barnabas was right or Paul was right or if one of them was wrong. They probably both had good reasons. But what we do see is that Barnabas didn't give up on Mark, even when Mark didn't deserve it. He failed. He proved to be trustworthy, untrustworthy. He proved to be unreliable, but Barnabas didn't give up on him. And because of Barnabas's kind mentoring, he guided Mark towards a path of repentance so that he could be rebuild his reputation and be useful again. I've shared about a historical Christian who's really influenced me in the past from this pulpit, and I want to tell you a little bit about his life again. Um, there's a man who lived around the time that the United States was just becoming a nation whose name was David Brainard. David Brainard was a young man who really badly wanted to be a pastor, so he entered to Yale University to get his theology degree. And when he entered Yale University, he was really disappointed with the general sense of apathy that he saw in his students, his fellow students at the time. But at that time, actually, there was a very unique event that happened that was really a time of revival and transformation in the United States that happened through the preaching of God's word by godly men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And history looks back at this time and calls it the Great Awakening. And, and during this preaching, David Brainard saw his peers hear the word of God preached and be changed and transformed and have a passion and a love for Jesus that wasn't there before. Man, maybe we need that again in our time. Maybe we need that again in our church. Sometimes I feel like that. I need that in my life. But this, this, this movement of transformation, it happened really in the students. And they became so bold that they actually looked at the faculty, at the professors, and were like, you guys are so lame and we're so on fire. You might as well, you're probably not even Christians. And they were criticizing the professors pretty bad. So much so that the professors got so upset that they actually had created this rule, new rule in Yale University that said if any student says that a professor is unconverted, <laughs> they will, first offense, need to give a public apology, second offense, be expelled. Guess what happened to David Brainard? He was caught in public saying that one of his professors had less grace than a chair. 
David Brainerd was expelled. All of his dreams and desires to be a pastor and to help other people follow Jesus and find the abundant life that can be found in Christ seemed to be dashed. And he was the top of his class. And at that time in New England, there was a, a, a kind of a rule that you couldn't be a pastor if you weren't certified by a school like Yale. And after he was expelled, no one else would accept him. But one guy advocated for him, a man named Jonathan Dickinson. Brainerd wanted to be a pastor, but Dickinson took him under his wing and said, you know, maybe God has a different plan for you. And he helped him become a missionary to the indigenous peoples in New England. And the Great Awakening followed David Brainerd into the indigenous peoples, and he was able to see a revival of 130 indigenous peoples to start a church. And that wouldn't have happened if he didn't fail. And he wouldn't have been moved to this new place if it wasn't for the trusting advocate who took him under his wing, Jonathan Dickinson. Some of the most fruitful times in my own life came out of the worst failures in my life. One time when I was removed from a position of ministry that I really loved and really enjoyed, that same morning, God allowed me to read this passage in Scripture, Hebrews 12, verse 11. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who will be trained by it. Maybe y'all got aspirations to want to do something good and great for the Lord. But maybe you've messed up and you've proven to be unreliable. Don't shrink away from the pain. Own it. Because God will use it to train you to be able to do something through you that you couldn't expect. And that was better than we thought could have been done before. It was the mentoring of Barnabas that allowed him to repent and rebuild his reputation so that the relationship with Paul could be reunited so that he could be useful again. God can use unreliable, trustworthy people if you're willing to be teachable and trained when you own your failure. So own it. We don't want to be there, though. We want to be faithful people, not failing people. We don't want to be like... These guys, Onesimus and Mark, we want to be like some of the other guys who are with Paul who were just like steady Freddy the whole time. Like, like Luke and like Epaphras. The next group of people that we're introduced to are the Greeks, Epaphras and Luke and Demas. We learned a lot about Epaphras this past week. This week we're going to learn a little about Luke and Demas. And the life of Luke reminds me that God can use faithful people to be useful for his work. God uses faithful people for his work, but the line between faithfulness and faithlessness is very thin. And it can be crossed without anyone else ever noticing it. So this will be an encouragement to faithfulness, but it's always also going to be a warning about the danger of becoming faithless. Luke was the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles that chronicles the early church. Luke was like super smart. 
He was a doctor by trade. He was given some, a grant by a wealthy benefactor to finance him to be able to write the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And we see his faithfulness through his loyalty to the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul went through horrible trials. He didn't just write the story of the church through the book of Acts. He also was a part of the story that happened in the book of Acts. And he was loyal to Paul through Paul's trials. See, Paul was redirected by God away from Asia into Macedonia, and Luke was there. Paul went to Jerusalem knowing he was going to be arrested, and Luke was there. Paul was transported in chains to Rome, and he became shipwrecked, and Luke was there. Paul was close to death in a Roman prison when almost all of the churches that Paul planted had abandoned him, but Luke was still there. Yet there was someone else who was supposed to be there with Paul in that Roman prison when all the churches had abandoned him, but that person wasn't there. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 to 9, it says, Luke alone is with me. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here, when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, he was in a prison. Luke was with him. Demas was with him. But the next time Paul was in prison, Luke was with him and Demas deserted him. Why? The line from faithfulness to faithlessness is razor thin. And we see the reason why Demas left. It says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 9, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. When you cross the line from faithfulness to faithlessness, your usefulness to God will expire. How can we preserve our usefulness to the Lord and prevent it from expiring? Before I was married, I was um, the type of guy where if I had a loaf of bread that was a little old, and one of the slices of bread was a little discolored, it wouldn't prevent me from eating the other slices of bread because they didn't look like they were discolored. But that kind of changed when I got married. How many of you would be people like me? If there's one piece of moldy bread, take it out. The rest are fine. I'll eat the rest. Show of hands. It's not a shame to say it. Yeah, yeah, I was like that. Not like that anymore. For my wife... Uh, one day past expired is totally expired. One slice of moldy bread might as well be no bread, go buy more. <laughs> because, you know, if it's expired, it's not useful anymore. So what we do now to make sure our bread stays longer is we just keep it in the freezer all the time. And then when we need it, we take it out and microwave it a little bit and then use it. And that preserves the usefulness of the bread. What can preserve our usefulness to the Lord and prevent us from expiring? Your love for God. If your love expires, if your love for God expires, your usefulness to God can expire. We have on average about a thousand people who attend our three weekend services. 
And I looked at the stats this week and to see, ask, wonder, how many people are serving? See, this message is about God can use any type of people to be useful for his work. How many people are working for Christ this weekend? And from our stats, I saw that there were 115 people serving in many different various activities. That's amazing. Over, over 10% of our weekend attendants aren't just coming to church to worship, they're also coming to church to work, whether that's worship or production or hospitality or integration or teller uh, offering counting or kids ministry, 115 people. I praise God for that. But I honestly wonder how many of us are working for Christ but have an empty heart for Christ, where they're serving but they're serving with the wrong motive or they're working, but they're not really worshiping. Demas, his usefulness expired because his love for God expired, and he, he loved the things of the world. Your love for God is like a fire. A coal furnace cannot be left to its own. The coals must be stirred. More coals must be put on or else the fire's going out. If you're going to build a campfire, it needs dry logs. It needs fuel. And if you put water on it, you ain't making any s'mores. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised when your love for God dwindles if you think that you can love the world at the same time. First John says, do not love the world or the things of the world because the things that are in the world are not from the Father. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of the life are not from the Father but from the world. And the world and all its desires are passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. If you want to make a difference, if you want to be useful, your usefulness will be preserved in your love for God. We don't need more cogs in the wheel so that the machinery of the church keeps coming. We need more logs on the fire so that our passion for God is lit. Because eventually, if you're serving out of just duty alone and not love, or out of, I don't know, pride to be seen by others, or you're serving equally loving the world while trying to love God, don't be surprised when you walk away. Brothers and sisters, you are dearly loved. And the thing that will preserve your usefulness to God is your love for God. Put more logs in the fire. But you might be saying, it's like, all right, well, chill out. What about the people who aren't doing anything in the church? At least I'm doing something. What about the people who come and treat the church like Cineplex? Just show up, give me my popcorn, give me my movie, leave me alone. I might use the bathroom at the end, but then I'm gone. What about the people who don't even do anything for the church? Okay, well, you know what? We actually have someone who's like that right here that we're going to look at right now. The last group of people that we're introduced to are the people in Colossae that Paul wants to see greeted. And we meet a man named Archippus. Look at verse 17. It says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Archippus' life reminds me that God... God can even use lazy people to do his work. And I know that 
because you're looking at someone who is one of those people. So evidently, Archippus wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. If he was told, see that you fulfill the ministry you've received from the Lord, he wasn't fulfilling the ministry that you received from the Lord. And evidently, everyone else knew it too. Because Paul didn't himself say, hey, Archippus, it's Paul here. Do what you're supposed to do. He, he said, hey, church, tell Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received from the Lord. Archippus wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. Everyone knew he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. But Paul didn't give up on him. Paul called him to be something more than he was. See, Paul delivered two letters at this time, one to the, to, to the Colossian church, first this letter, and then the lesser that was, letter that was addressed to Philemon about like forgiving Onesimus. And those letters were, could have been read back to back. At the end of this letter, Archippus hears this accountability, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. And then immediately in the next letter that is read, this is what he hears Paul say to him. He says in Philemon verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. In one statement, Paul says, um, we are holding you accountable. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. In the next statement, he calls this lazy man his fellow soldier. Why? Even if Archibus didn't even believe in himself, even if he didn't think he could do what he was supposed to do, evidently Paul believed in him. A soldier doesn't have time to be lazy. A soldier, soldier doesn't have time to be distracted because the enemy could be around any corner. You're at war. The, your life is literally at stake. And even though Archippus was distracted and lazy, Paul was calling him to something more. He believed he could do that job he was called to do, that God gave him to do, even if Archippus himself didn't even believe that. And friends, all of us are called to ministering the Lord. All of us are called to build up the body of Christ. All of us are called to share the gospel with unbelievers. All of us have in Christ gifts, some of speaking gifts, some of serving gifts. All of us have been given gifts by the Spirit to do the work in the strength of the Spirit and not our strength. But maybe you're dragging your feet. I know God can use lazy people because you're looking at someone who was. Fellow soldiers, pick up your arms because your master and commander, Jesus Christ, has enlisted you for battle. You're not here to please me. You're not here to please your small group leader. You're not here to please any of the staff or the elders because none of us have enlisted you. We all are enlisted by one commander, Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 4 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, distracted, lazy, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Are you picking up your arms and working for your master? And if you know you're not, what's distracting you? Are extracurricular activities distracting you? Are, is your family calendar so busy 
with so many things that you have no time to do what God has called you to do. Let me rephrase that. Is your family calendar so busy that you have chosen to give your time to the things of the world rather than to what your master has called you to? Fellow soldier, don't be distracted. We are at war. We need to do our best to please Christ. But if we're not, how do we change? How did Onesimus change when he was useless? How did Mark change when he was unreliable? How could Demas have changed? How would Archibus have changed? What is the catalyst that can make us be useful? By the grace of God, repentance is the catalyst for our usefulness. Maybe you are one who needs to repent today to admit they've been walking the wrong direction, turn around and in love of God and thankfulness and grace, walk as a useful servant to the Lord. Repentance is that detergent that cleanses us from what is dishonorable so that we can be honorable vessels to be used by the Lord. When I was in youth ministry here at our church a couple years ago, a friend and I who was working in small group in youth ministry at the time wanted to do a really cool event for youth. We wanted to have a barbecue and a campfire there. And he found online a really cool thing that you could make a way where if you put certain things into the campfire, it could change the color of the flame to different colors like pink and like blue. What you had to do was if you got uh, candles and melted down the wax, and then mixed some like chemicals into the wax. Uh, Epsom salt was one. Um, also the, the stuff that's in the, a, a flare, when you cut the flare open, that could turn the flame red, I think. And if you mix that into the wax and then allowed the wax to solidify in a paper cup and then throw, some of you are like, oh, I'm gonna do this when I go up to the cottage this weekend. <laughs> and then you throw that into the fire, then it could actually change the color. And we thought this is a great idea. So we're like, all right, let's do it. So we had to get Epsom salt, we had to get candles, we'd get a car flare and cut it open and we needed to boil it down and mix it all together. And we did all of that in my kitchen with my pots and pans, <laughs> which was a bad idea. <laughs> And which was another thing that I learned not to do after I got married with my wife. And when she found out that we did that, she was not very pleased, rightly so. And I had to do a lot of work to be able to clean that wok that I used as a double boiler for the flare and the wax. Because I knew... What I didn't realize at that time, that if I didn't clean this, I would never be able to use it for what it was designed for again. Laziness, unreliable work ethic, useless, damaging sinfulness, faithlessness, these all make us dishonorable vessels that need to be cleansed if we're going to be used. 
But 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Do you want to be useful to the Lord? Do you want to spend your days for a purpose that lasts beyond the length of your life? Repentance, because of the grace of God, is the catalyst for our usefulness. If you know you've been living a dishonorable ways that has prohibited you from being useful, if you know your love is failing, repent. Believe in the grace of Jesus Christ and present yourself to him again and God will use you. He'll be that tool in his tool belt that he can use for any good Lord, make me useful. Lord, make us useful. Are you ready to be used like this today? Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father in heaven, thank you for the example of these men and how your grace transformed them to be able to be useful for you. God, I'm thankful that you would even be willing to use someone like me. I'm thankful that you would be willing to use a people like us. So God, I pray that you would use us. God, I pray that you would use our church to be able to encourage one another and speak the truth in love so that we would be built up into maturity. God, I pray that you would use us to be able to be light into the darkness of our world ambassadors representing Jesus Christ so that others who do not, not know, do not yet know you would come to know you and the abundant life that they can have in Christ. And Lord, whatever might be dishonorable that we would need to cleanse ourselves of to be useful for you, help us to be quick to confess, to be quick to repent, to turn from it, and to believe in your grace. Thank you that what unites us together isn't my accomplishments or our unique uh, demographics. Thank you that what unites us together is Christ who is all and is, is all. Is, Lord, would Christ equip us for this? Would your grace motivate us for this? And would his testimony, the work of what Christ has done in my life, continue to motivate us to work day by day? And help us to put logs on that fire when our love is dwindling so that we might be preserved in our usefulness to you. I thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.